Hello and welcome to another episode of 32. I'm Alexander Winberry and I'm joined today by indie miniature extraordinaire Nick Evans. Hi Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be on the show. (laughs) I'm really glad you had the time to to, uh, speak with us. You were one of those who were more requested when I put out the call, like who, who would people want to hear from? Okay, that's... That's worrying. That's actually worrying. <laughs> but in a positive way, I hope. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. you've managed to carve out quite a quite a niche for yourself in the in the miniature scene. I think, hmm. like you do, yeah. you do miniatures, you do games, uh, you do proper art as well. Yeah, a man of many talents. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, a, a sort of. Jack of all trades, master of none, I guess. I do a lot of things to a certain extent. How did you... Like, where did you get started from? I remember you were in the Inquisitor 28 Facebook groups quite early on. But what did you do? Like, how did you get into the hobby side of things? Um, I, I got into it through the Lord of the Rings game. So I don't know... I don't know if this was an international thing, but in the UK, when Games Workshop launched the Lord of the Rings miniature game, there was a, a Partworks magazine for it, um, Battle Games in Middle-Earth, which was, came with like a magazine and a handful of figures. And at the time, I loved Lord of the Rings, and I loved making things, because I was about uh, 2000, so I would have been about seven. So I was always just making things out of cardboard and sellotape, and suddenly there was this magazine that was saying, hey, here's, here's Lord of the Rings and an excuse to make castles out of cardboard and tape and polystyrene and stuff. So it naturally just sort of kind of attracted me. And then I've just spent money on that ever since, really. That's uh, been my main preoccupation since. I know of those magazines. I think they were more like an UK-US thing. I think they mm. were like perhaps uh, French and German versions. They didn't yeah. make their way to, to Scandinavia. And... Uh, I believe Games Workshop is doing something similar these days with 40k yeah. and Age of Sigmar. Yeah, they've got they've got a couple out. I think Stormbringer is the new one with Age of Sigmar. And yeah, it's the same thing, you know, it's it's just reduced price Warhammer mm. glued to the front of a magazine that you immediately don't read. You're just there for the figures. Yeah, I mean um, it's it's really a great way to hook people, I think. Yeah. Like you you see especially as like Lord of the Rings, which was really huge at the yeah, like, beginning yeah. of the millennium. It's hard to imagine now anything else being like the same kind of phenomenon it was, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that that basically took up a solid like half decade of my childhood, I think, was those films and the hangover from them. Mm-hmm. You know, basically from the age of about six to... Uh, probably about now, I would just go with my friends into the woods with sticks and we'd beat each other senseless playing Lord of the Rings because that's how much we loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's it's one of those things that just like lets you play with it, I think, in a good way. Yeah. Um and then I don't remember how I don't remember how long ago or how long into that it was, but because I'm from and live in Leicester, we're only up the road from Warhammer World. Mm. And so at some point, I realized there was a shop dedicated to these miniatures. And at some point, a member of staff in our local Warhammer shop said, by the way, all of this is made, you know, 10 miles up the road and you can go and visit. And so we went to Warhammer World and that's when I sort of discovered 40K and mm. 
that really caught me, you know, things with guns, things with weird technology, machinery, fit in with all the other things I liked. It kind of, (laughs) and it was a bit more open than Lord of the Rings. Like Lord of the Rings was a story. Suddenly 40K was a setting. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that really caught my attention because, again, I liked drawing and making things. And especially in the kind of early 2000s, a lot of 40K was focused on converting and making your scenery and cutting up cereal boxes to make stuff. That that just, yeah, that made complete sense to me as a child. That was like, yeah, that is absolutely what I can see myself spending time doing. I never really stopped from there, I suppose. You didn't have the, like, uh, traditional dropouts when you turned 18. I, I wish I could say I was cool enough to have stopped at some point. <laughs> I don't think I ever did. I kind of, I might have just neglected it for a bit. I think I stopped wanting to actually play 40k but miniatures always kind of kept with me and i just started buying other things so i started buying model kits and bashing those together and historical figures and converting them into weird things and then it was when i was just about to start university that i discovered this kind of inquisitor 28 movement mm. and blanchitsu and all that it kind of just i don't again i don't remember how it crossed my radar but it was just at that right point of like, I've got a little bit of disposable income from my first job. I don't have a lot of space and I've never been someone who's had full armies anyway. And there was this sudden way of like, Oh, you can, you can do all this. You can do Warhammer. You can do what you're doing with only a few figures in a really creative way. Mm. Um, that, yeah, again, just caught my attention. I went, yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. Cause that's sort of what I'm doing anyway. So I just carried on from there really. Yeah. I mean, the good thing of like the whole Inquisitor twenty eight is like you can take the things you enjoy the most of the hobby mm. and do it on a really like tiny scale, like one to two yeah. one to two miniatures even if you just want it. So you can you can make that true scale space marine or mm. navigator or all the cool things that didn't exist. Like there are those things that you now can buy a kit for. We didn't have yeah. them in like yeah. two thousand ten. No, and also I think a lot of my collection of 40k stuff came from charity shops. Mm. So I would I had, in retrospect, stupidly, I sold them to then afford to go to uni, but I had things like the complete Necromunda starter set from a charity shop ah. with someone's entire collection of metal gangs just chucked in there. Oh, God. <laughs> and that was sort of at the time that the Games Workshop weren't supporting Necromunda. So to me, it was just this kind of toolbox of scenery and bits to... Mm mess with um and because i i just picked things up from car boot sales and charity shops there was no cohesive theme to my collection and still isn't in fairness so i would just i would just have pockets of a collection of specific mm-hmm. things i'd have like a couple of space marines and a couple of guardsmen and a handful of chaos guys and so that was just how i engaged with that universe was just through these little character pieces more than through big armies yeah that's like i think that's much better way to do it especially when you have like a a small income as you know pocket money Mm. and stuff like that i tried when i was a kid to play uh 40k and it was horrendously expensive and Mm. you know i was playing imperial guard so i could only get like now and then a box of 10 miniatures i could never afford a tank because i couldn't plan that far, like saving pocket money to get yeah, one. Yeah. But when I played Mordheim, it was completely different because then you could get like 
one box of mercenaries and build mm. it really into anything. Mm. So yeah, the skirmish sized in that sense is is lovely, and it was it was a bit of a shame back then when they stopped supporting all those games. Yeah, I mean, I do remember playing Inquisitor when it was still out. I remember a friend at a local games workshop talking me through a game. And I remember thinking, this is great because you only need one figure. This is perfect for me. I can make loads of characters for this. And then it just, this was before I knew how to use the internet. So it just sort of, a friend had it, it went away, and that was it. I just then didn't hear of it. And again, for another like decade until someone brought it up again. Yeah, dead game was dead back then. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't think it did particularly well at the first. I mean, it had a, a little moment, but. Yeah, I, I don't see it being like a big seller for them at any point. Maybe some no. of the miniatures, like Eisenhorn was probably popular among those who like to paint. Yeah. But other than that, it was kind of a weird game in many ways. I still don't really like the rules. I think they're weird and clunky. No. Yeah, and I mean, that's sort of not liking the rules to Inquisitor in later life is sort of now kicks me off into a whole new avenue of engaging with the hobby really. Cause I had the same thing. Mm. And my initial like thing was, uh, if you look at the history of things, games workshop have published, they've kind of tried to do inquisitor three times. Mm. So the first laser burn, um, the original confrontation. Oh, that's, yeah. That that's really old school. <laughs> um, so confrontation that then become Necromunda and inquisitor all kind of have the same rule system. They're all this kind of D100-based system, and it's weird. They, they kind of carried it on each time, and each time they sort of got it a bit better. Mm. But every single time, little faults from each one came through. And you almost feel like now, if they did it, maybe they could fix it. But it, it's odd. I, I just find Inquisitor such a weird game for that reason. I think you're quite right. I mean... I have all the confrontation rules, or like the white dwarfs where they appeared in, mm. and it's really hard to understand how it's supposed to work, even like just looking at it. It's very, mm. we are very old school RPG. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, I think like if they did it today, I would probably not like it, to be honest. I think they would, wouldn't make it into a game I would enjoy. But I agree that they probably would make it into a product that would sell and attract players. Yeah, yeah. It's just like I've, in my taste, have moved in a different direction, so I wouldn't be that, you know, enthralled yeah. by it. I have thought that maybe Warcry would be a great vehicle to do an Inquisitor-style game if Games Workshop were going to bring it back, hmm? because it's sort of because it's so combat-focused. It kind of goes completely the other way to the point where you you don't need to have that comparison. Yeah. But the actual rule system is really elegant, but it still maintains a little bit of that risk and balance that Inquisitor had. Mm. So if they were going to redo it, I think Warcry would be a great baseline to start from. Yeah. I'm kind of curious to see that uh, box they made, Kill Team, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I think it sold out in like a minute. But hopefully, oh, yeah. like, I can have a look at the rules through, through somebody. But I guess it's just, like, kill team with, like, slightly mixed uh, inquisitorial agents. Yeah, yeah. I my, my take on kill team is that they kind of dropped the ball on it. It started out quite nicely, but then it just... They kept adding too much to it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's how I feel about a lot of... And I, I, I feel mean saying it, but that's how I feel about a lot of Games Workshop games at the moment. And mm. it makes 
complete sense. You know, they need to support a product line. I so, mean, business sense, yeah, I fully understand yeah, yeah. it. Um, but yeah, like, I would really love to get into Warcry, but I almost feel like I now need to wait for a new edition yeah. <laughs> before I can do that because I, I don't know where the baseline is. And I feel mm. like that with a lot of their systems at the moment, you almost, you either buy in at a new edition or you just wait for the three-year cycle to come around and buy in when they redo it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And uh, like with the new 40K coming out and they're saying like, yeah, all the old codexes are going in the bin. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, yay. So that's a couple of books I probably will never yeah. buy again. That's uh but it's okay. I'll be down the charity shop again after mm. they release a new one, picking them all up for a pound. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a friend who owns a hobby store. He was just like, yeah, he'll probably end up throwing them away because he can't return them and nobody's going to buy the old ones. So I'm just like, I think I might buy them from you for a discount. Yeah. <laughs> I um, I did work in a hobby shop when I was doing my degree and we had the same thing. It was around the time that it was the eighth edition launch, I think. It was the edition that launched Primaris Marines. I think that was 8th edition. Yes, yes. We're yes. on the 9th now, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we we got that at the same time I was working there. And yeah, the amount of army books that we just essentially binned. Mm-hmm. You know, you take a thousand pounds worth of stock, you reduce yeah. it down to 50p, no one wants it. So you just goes in the bin at the end. It was it was really heartbreaking in a way. But yeah, on the right yeah. side you know, an entire seventh edition army book collection from it. Oh yeah, that's true there. Yeah, and I think like up to seventh edition, the codex is kind of like just like rumbled along. So you mm. could use them. They were getting more and more shitty as the game changed, but the basics were still still yeah. very much the same. I I remember still using like the Katachan codex right up till maybe sixth edition was the last game I ever properly played a 40k. And I was still using the Kastjan Codex, kind of bolted onto the latest Imperial Guard Codex, which was yeah. out of date at the time then. But that was just sort of the the expectation. You kind of went, oh, I've not got a Codex update in a while. I'll just keep using this one forever until someone tells me otherwise. Yeah. Whereas now it very much feels like you can time the fact that your Codex will come out within three years. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I played 40k third edition and then i kind of stopped when i joined the army mm. and didn't like then i went to university i wasn't like in it until like eighth edition and it was like such a radical change i was like okay yeah eighth edition was kind of fun mm. but then they just kept adding things and i was just like i i don't have the mental interest like the interest to keep learning all this shit and keep track <laughs> of auras and all these mechanics that would be really nice in a computer game mm. but i don't see like as fun to keep track of in a game so i've been kind of like if i play 40k it's third edition like full mm. stop i'm not engaging with anything new after that i don't mind like i can use the new miniatures i'm not mm. going to be like yay i need that old plastic box yeah. but it's just like i know those rules uh, well enough to just like play a casual game yeah. and not bother yeah. like stressing it too much and especially with like then i learn it play once a year and then it's like sorry the rules got updated now you have to learn it again <laughs> yeah like, no. that's the other thing as well 
I think the the thing that really stopped me playing regularly was when Apocalypse came out, mm. and all of a sudden, all these all these massive units from Apocalypse very quickly kind of made their way into regular forty k. Yeah, and like I said, the only army I've ever had to any kind of complete playable standard was a Katachan Guard army, <laughs> and fun. A Katachan Guard army gets destroyed very quickly in a game where your opponents have got super heavy tanks and gargants and stuff. Mm. And for me, that sort of like I would I would go to a game and it would suddenly kind of be like, ah, oh, yeah, I guess it's kind of thematic that a one thousand point orc army might have four gargants, mm. <laughs> but it doesn't feel amazingly. I don't feel like there's a narrative emerging here beyond I die. Yeah, it it gets old pretty quickly, doesn't it? Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that kind of then pushed me into I'll just look at skirmish games from now on. Yeah, I wish they'd brought back epic, like mm. a proper epic, not this Titan game, but with like huge waves of miniatures that are like super tiny, so you just mm. like splash a little bit of color if you aren't like you know golden demon winner, and. Uh, yeah, just like if you want to use big battles, use these rules. I, I really enjoyed Warmaster, I think it was called, the mm-hmm. fantasy version. Although, like, honestly, I was a kid, so I didn't have much, a lot of money, so we just cut up like cornflakes uh, packages and then yeah. wrote like infantry, like empire, halberdiers on it and stuff like that and moved it around. It wasn't perhaps the prettiest game, but it, it was fun. Yeah, it does the job, it does the job. It's, yeah, uh... it's a game. <laughs> I'm, I vaguely remember playing a game with my friends where we just, back when Games Workshop would just put like a flat image of all the miniatures in the box on the back mm. of the box. We just cut them out and use those. So we oh, cut yeah. out the 10 Space Marines on the back of the box and add them <laughs> in. And then you had 20 Space Marines. That's a perfect way of doing it. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> we thought we were really clever doing that. Like, yeah, we found a loophole. Mm. <laughs> it's still the official like box. Yeah. So. <laughs> I paid for it from Games Workshop, so I can use it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how did you then move on? Like, you became involved in the Inquisitor scene a little bit, at least? Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of loosely orbited it, I think. I'd kind of... Because, like I say, I was doing that when I was at uni. And... It was only the fact that I worked in a game shop that kind of facilitated that because I got free access to bits and leftover mm. miniatures and stuff. So I would make a miniature kind of once every six months and post it to Facebook. So yeah, I, I think some of the things I posted online kind of became known to other people. Like I know I, I did a bunch of demons with kind of geometric heads and stuff that were all sculpted. Yeah, I think I remember those. Yeah, and I, I sort of, for a solid like three or four months, I kept getting tagged in things of people going, oh, you should look at these demons that this person's made. And mm. that was really nice. Um, and I think because that happened, because it kind of felt like it was actually a community where people were making things and developing things, and that felt very similar to what I was doing with art in general at the time as well, and how you kind of develop these peer networks and you've got this consistent creative feedback that kind of then brought me even more into it. I was like, right, I actually want to engage with this fully and I want to get back into it and do this more in my spare time. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden I sort of had all these figures and went, it would be nice to play some games with these. And I realized that I didn't, 
I didn't like a lot of game systems, but the, the work I was doing to get them to fit with my figures was basically just rebuilding them from scratch anyway. So I started looking at making games from that point, I suppose. And I think that's more probably what people would associate me with within the world of miniatures is with making games for using them rather than the actual miniatures. Yeah, it's probably true. I mean, I took a quick look at old numbers of 28 and I realized you've been in every one except number two. Yes. Uh, the first one, you uh, have a slight uh, converted Nurgle gang mm. of different thugs. And the third one, you actually talked more about uh, stepping out from you know Warhammer world into all these kind of indie. And yeah. That one really caught fire. There was a lot of mm. talk about it. People really mm. liked it. Yeah, and I think that was sort of... I think I was referencing like Turnip Twenty Eight in that at the very start when Max I had think so, yeah. not was, even published anything for that. Yeah, it was like it was, moving yeah. from having this weird artsy face where people just like threw together weird like Napoleon miniatures into becoming kind of a setting in its own yeah. right. So yeah, that that would really like sparked a fire in in a lot of enthusiasts, I guess. Good, good. I know I, I did an article about art for you as well. I think. Yeah, that one we got some hate from. It was like, I don't want to read about this. I was just like, don't read <laughs> it, I guess. It's a free magazine. You're Good. Like, Good. I'm glad people were upset by that. That makes me happy. I think that's like a positive thing. Anything that you read and kind of makes you think, even hmm. if you get angry, I think that's a worthwhile thing to do. Well... Yeah, I mean, that, that whole issue of our miniatures are, if you Google just that question, you just find no end of kind of Reddit threads or forum threads of people mm. asking that same question. And it's just that debate goes back and forth forever. And it does seem really, really polarized on one side or the other. You have a lot of people going, oh, it is, it can be art, mm. which is my position is that it can be in the same way anything can be Yeah, if you choose it to be. Um, and then you have some really strong opinions saying, no, it's not. And I almost wonder to a certain extent whether it's just that if you say it can be, some people maybe feel like it then has to be, and that becomes quite threatening to their relaxation, to something that they don't want to necessarily engage with in that way. So that was why I took that stance of, well, it can be art, mm. but it can also not be art um, yeah. in the same way that, Stone carving can be art, and it cannot be art. It's mm. uh, yeah, it's like anything. Anything can be art, provided it's contextualized in the right way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, and uh, I like having those kind of discussions and mm. seeing like how people react to them, especially if they don't get like too hot-headed about it. Yeah, it's, it doesn't have to be like you know, ninety-nine percent of the miniatures uh, I make, I wouldn't call art. But every now no. and then, like, the whole, like, the complete picture becomes kind of artistic. Mm. But it's, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say any miniature I've made is art. But one thing that at the time I was quite interested in was that, and still is, there is, like, a real push within contemporary art for world building as practice. Mm. So a lot of people kind of creating these fictional worlds, and that sort of there were a lot of articles at the time and they're still coming out of people going, oh, this amazing new trend within the visual arts of 
people creating whole universes and creating these collaborative engagements with them. And I was just looking at it going, that's just that's that's just what role play yeah. do. That's what Warhammer players do. That's what anyone who's ever made a fictional setting and given it to their mates does. Mm. It's um, so to me it felt like a lot of tabletop gamers were getting unfairly overlooked mm. as pioneers of quite an a uh, popular new emergent art form. So it felt like it was worth saying that actually, you know, we, we were doing this first. We were yeah. gotta give give us nerds some credit here. Exactly. It's not like we get it way hmm. too often by any standards. So And uh your first game then was Planet 28, right? Um I don't know if I did Super Tiny Skirmish first. Oh, yeah. That was definitely the first like product I made that was like a thing you could actually buy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Planet Twenty Eight, Planet Twenty Eight, kind of went through like a couple of iterations before it became anything. Because I remember posting updates about it on the Inquisitorium Facebook page, because I was trying to make this kind of much more forty k specific system that was just snowballing into this unmanageably complex game. Yeah. Um, and then I, I was looking at, like, what a lot of role-play gamers were doing at the time, with these pamphlet games, mm-hmm. where they were just getting, like, a six-sided fold-up pamphlet and putting a whole role-play system on there. And I thought, oh, I could do that with a war game. And then I took that challenge, and that became the core system that then became Planet 28. So I think I was probably working on Planet 28 beforehand, in some form or another. Mm. Yeah, that was probably what I was doing first, I suppose. I think that's, like, the name, you know. I'm one of the... I blame you and Max. <laughs> I knew this was going to I, I, I do take some of the blame as, uh, myself because I named the magazine 28. But I think, like, we three created an unholy set standard where everything is fucking 28 now. And sure. I loathe it, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, it's kind of funny, but it also has become so dumb, hasn't it? <laughs> I genuinely thought the other day, before doing this, I really hope they don't bring up the fact that the 28, the sort of game title 28, is possibly my fault. Yeah. I'm like, um, you, you did it, then Max kind of nailed it in with Turnip, yes. and then... I was dumb enough to be like, yeah, let's go minimalist. Let's call it 28. <laughs> well, I, I will say, I, I feel like F28 was out first. I, I don't. It's possible, but that one, not to like be mean or anything, but that was such an oddball game in the beginning where you only could get it physically from like a few stores in Sweden. So yes. I had never heard of it. I'd heard of it and I'd seen bits and pieces of it online, but again, I really, actually, really wanted to know more about it, but mm. couldn't actually get any information <laughs> on it beyond a few things on forums. But I, I do think they did it first. Although, was it called War Never Changes before it was called F28? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. That's one of those, like, if you don't have a digital copy, I'm not going to buy it just like really yeah. nearly. I mean, I'm, because I'm, I'm curious just about the blame game. here. Sorry, I'm, I'm just I'm just trying to deflect blame and yeah, uh, <laughs> not take responsibility. I think it's fair enough. If in, 
in my defense, I actually don't know why I called it Planet 28. Because I was trying to think of that the other day as well. Because someone asked me, and mm-hmm. for the life of me, I cannot remember why Planet 28 was the title I stuck with. It's a bit of an initially I called name, it something it? like... It, it's it's a weird name, and a lot of people like first who didn't know about the twenty eight movement were sort of like, why is it like which why is it planet twenty eight? There aren't twenty eight planets. Yeah, and that yeah that makes sense. But I think initially I called it something like Forgotten Frontiers, and then I had it pointed out to me that that's a setting in D anD D, and I needed to rename it, and so it had a whole bunch of titles, and I cannot. I've really tried tracking down the first point at which I called it Planet 28, and I can't figure out why I did it. But I kind of like it. I mean, it has this, you know, really C-50s, you know, sci-fi Hollywood movie, really like B or C-leveled, where it's like, you know, Plan 9, was it Plan 9 of Outer Space? It has this kind of same, kind of retro vibe to it, doesn't it? I'm going to assume it. I must have, I don't know, I must have been watching retro sci-fi films or doing something that made me want to call it that because I don't know now looking back at what I call things I imagine I would have called it like super tiny murder or something like that I don't know but I think but, yeah um, I think you went with the right name yeah yeah in absolutely. the end because it's the, it stands out yeah yeah and uh, you've also like did Brutal Quest a fantastic Fantasy-ish game, I guess you could call it. Yeah, well, it was um, because obviously, if you do a sci-fi game, you have to do a fantasy version. That's Absolutely. that's the law. Um, and I, I sort of i i go i flitter between sci-fi and fantasy as like what I'm focused on at any given time. And I did a lot of sci-fi for Planet Twenty Eight, and then I just got really sort of I'm. I want to. I want to do some trees now. I want to look at some trees and some woods and do fantasy. Um, so yeah, and a lot of people had asked, like, will there be a fantasy version? So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll do a fantasy version. And I tried to make it a bit more, even more narrative focused. So Brutal Quest has got kind of, you can give your characters quest lines, and it's much more focused on having a game master because there's off-table role play involved. Because I was just trying to make the kind of game that I thought would be a fun fantasy equivalent to Inquisitor. Mm. Um, and having never played Mordheim, I kind of wasn't too... I didn't have any preconceptions about what a fantasy narrative game should be. So I never really... I think that can, might be, yeah. be a healthy like way to approach it. Do something you're not too yeah. stuck in. So you're not like too like, oh, I have to have this because Game X had it. yeah. And in fairness, I mean, I, I've got to say, I'm, I'm quite a bad gamer in that I'm not actually amazingly good at games. So I will play them, and someone else will have to explain the rules to me. Or if they're very simple, I'll understand the rules. So my engagement with them on like a mechanical level when I'm playing them is, oh, that was clever, if I, if I notice a mechanic. And that's sort of it. Like I'm not really good at picking apart the depths of a game. And like I know people can kind of, I remember this from 40k where people would like know the bell curve of probabilities for certain weapons versus certain units and stuff, and that they might would work you know, this out. You're and the I, art nerd, not the math nerd. Yeah, that's not that's not what I can do. But what I can do is I can draw very nice pictures of people getting shot with lasers, and that's sort of that's my selling point, really. 
I think that's like the best selling point uh, for me. If a game, like a perfect game, is fun, I guess, but mm-hmm. a game that looks fun is way more interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, one, I mean, one thing that I definitely noticed is the amount of people who sort of have said to me in the past, "Oh, yeah, I downloaded it or I bought it just for the artwork," mm-hmm. which is really nice and encouraging because. As, as someone whose background is in sculpture, I don't consider myself to be an illustrator. So it's nice to have this kind of encouragement where people go, actually, we really like the illustrations. We really like the art style. Um, and also, I'm, I'm not a graphics and layout person. So having people say, oh, yeah, I like the way that's laid out is is encouraging. And it's nice to know that it's sort of, you know, from the initial tiny zines to the new hardback, I've progressed to the point where people recognize the effort has been put in, which is nice. Absolutely. And I mean, I fully agree that the games just keeps getting visually much better. I don't play them, so I can't say for like, have you learned anything? But at least, you know, they look really neat. Mm. And yeah, I think like uh, we had a question on the Discord uh, for you. Like, do you have any, what would you do differently today if you started out making games with like what what you know? And do you have any good suggestions for those who are starting out making games or want to make a game? Um, I think if, it's hard to think what I'd do differently, mostly because none of it was ever particularly conscious in any way. I think I only put the first edition of Planet 28 onto Kickstarter because ZineQuest was a thing, mm. and that seemed like a nice kind of easy platform. And it was the first month of lockdown during the pandemic. And so I just needed something to do, really. If I was if I was sort of directing other people or starting again, putting things out to the community seems really helpful. And I know with Planet 28, initially I was making it, and still, you know, still do work on it and give it away free because I like the Inquisitor 28 and the kitbashing community, mm. which is why I have it free to download it's why it's on open license because i want people to use it and engage with it and i'm not saying everyone needs to go to that length but a certain amount of enticement is definitely good if you're getting started because there's loads of games where i've looked at them and thought that's got you know fantastic art sounds great looks amazing but it's sort of behind this 50 pound starter set paywall that's a bit more difficult to me to get with, especially if it's from someone who, or from a company you've never heard of with no kind of track record. Sometimes just having a little a little free something is enough to kind of get people to look at what you're doing. And also start small, start really small, start with a zine or a, a micro game or something because the logistical issues of doing something big are unexpected and stressful mm. so like with the the new planet 28 second edition hardback um for one thing i didn't realize how much space a thousand hardback books took up that's something you don't get oh taught. do you have to them them? all of them or yes. they're, they're they're around they're fine, they're fine. <laughs> um but also like you know shipping delays postage gets shut down for a month due to royal mail getting a a, a viral attack Mm. Well, that's that's like a a major delay if you've got a thousand books taking up your dining room. Whereas if you're only shipping a few hundred zines, that's not so bad. You know, you can stick those in a box and wait. So 
start small, I guess, and learn to navigate these issues as they come up. And that way, if you do fail as well, no one can kind of accuse you of having bitten off more than you can chew or of working with ulterior motives. Because things fail, you know, creative projects are hard. And I think the worst thing in the world is when you see someone who's clearly really passionate about something, especially with like Kickstarter, and they, they have this amazing project they want to do and they overpromise and overbuild it. And it's, you know, it's it's like a, a 400 miniatures board game hybrid thing with digital assets and everything involved in it. And you look at it and you go, there's no way one person can deliver all that to 10,000 people who've all paid for it. Um, and so naturally when that fails, which a lot of them inevitably do, there's all these accusations of, oh, well, maybe they were just doing it for the money. Maybe they were just, you know, it was all a con from the very start. And you go, well, it probably wasn't because if you're conning people, you don't, you don't pour there, is, there are easier ways to do a scam. Than yeah, that. you know, you don't con people by sculpt, hand sculpting a dozen miniatures and making all this artwork and getting demo copies bound up and sending stuff to reviewers. That's just well-meaning failure. But I think a lot of, maybe it is from Kickstarter, actually. I think maybe there is a lot of pressure to kind of come out the gate with these big projects that are kind of these developed uh, like games workshop killing new games. Mm. And I think sometimes actually these little small things that kind of develop their own community can snowball into something bigger and you bring that community with you. And that way, if it does mess up or if you go, actually, you know, I want to do something else that comes with you, that kind of support and that understanding and that development is there and it lays a a groundwork for carrying on. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, the same as any creative project, really, I suppose. It's, it's like developing an artwork or putting on shows or making music. You start from the ground up, and it's mm. slow and sometimes quite difficult, but that's just sort of that's the best way to go about it because that way the risk of failure scales with you rather than you taking on all this risk initially for not a great deal of reward. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very, very true. And uh, like looking at those passionate fan bases in like miniatures, uh, there's like we mentioned Max before, but yeah, Turnip28 is mm. growing uh, very much like on his own, uh, how do you say, terms. Mm. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's going slowly and nicely, and he has control over it. Same with your games, you know, you're not going like, hey, I'm going to make this box of 100 miniatures and you have to pay $500 yeah. to get it. And yeah, I think that's very like, if you're, if you're not, you know, independently rich for whatever mm. reason and want to do miniatures as, I guess, like your rich man's hobby, then yeah, going small is probably wise. And, and being like, hey, here are the free rules, check them out before you invest yeah, I think that's yeah. also a good way to get other players involved. I think we have this slightly unreasonable like expectation of things to be polished to Games Workshop standards. Yeah, I mean, I will say I'm quite bad at editing. There are a lot of typos in stuff that I've published. Less <laughs> in the new book. The new book is better. I actually got editors for this one. Um, awesome. But yeah, I think to a certain extent, because there really isn't any other big player in the miniature industry of that scale. Mm. Almost unfairly, Games Workshop kind of 
it becomes like a statistical outlier where everything gets judged against them because yeah. the majority of these projects, these big games, do come from them. True. So then when you get you know someone small who's sort of going, I'm, I'm, I've made this game or I've made this starter kit and it's got two figures and a little printed pamphlet, maybe it gets harshly criticised as not polished or not a premium product. But yeah. I don't know, not, not everything has to be premium. I think there's quite a lot of charm and fun in just engaging with someone's creativity in that way. I'm going to give a small shout out here to uh, Teaspoon, which I think is like, do you know that game? No, no. It's like the anti-games workshop. It's the most punk game I've seen. And Teaspoon. It's this Teaspoon, T-S-P-N, where you're oh, taking um, care of this like uh, fake pet. I mean, like yes, a Yes, no, pet. I do, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know that one. And I hadn't seen it until, you know, my friend Anna, Gardens of Ekate, mm. uh posted about it. I was just like, this is bizarre. What the hell is this? And the community there is like, the game is, I think it's whimsical and very like punk underground art to it, kind of mm. demented almost in a way. <laughs> but it's such a beautiful thing where people are like, oh yeah, I'm taking care of a pet. Uh, what, what's the pet? Yeah, it's this weird little toy I made. Yeah. And, it's unpolished to a fault, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's like, you can see the creative fun of it yeah. very much so. Yeah, I, I did. I saw that same post from Anna, and I hadn't heard of it before that. I would never have guessed it was meant to be pronounced teaspoon, in fairness. Um, mm. Although that does make sense now, I quite like that. <laughs> um, and I did look through it, and I went, this... And it kind of circles back to that thing of, at what point does something become art? that felt so much like someone's individual creative vision Yeah, that to me that that becomes game design as art and that mm -hmm. almost becomes like a collaborative creative thing where you've got these people making essentially a kind of a biosphere of all these little pets across the world. Yeah. That's That almost surpasses being a product. To the, yeah, to the point where that kind of surpasses the need to be a polished product. It's Its charm and its appeal and its strength is in the fact that it's someone's handwritten thing that you are, you're sort of given the privilege of engaging with. Hmm? Yeah, it's hmm. like really much, very much looking into somebody's almost private thoughts. Like this is my diary, what yeah. I did, and then you're like, "Hey, I'm going to share it with everyone to enjoy." Yeah, but even even just like the the actual act of having, just the act of thinking of making that game, where you're sort of like, "I want to, I want a game where all I do is I sit." by myself and I make a figure of a pet and it sits in a little landscape and I roll dice to determine what happened and nothing moves. It's just hypothetical. It's just kind of enhanced imagination. Even just being privy to that thought process is, is bizarre, but bizarre in a fantastic way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I'm translating the game into Swedish because I speak Swedish mm. with my kids and I was like to my daughter who's eight, I was like, hey, can you draw some weird animals here? She was like, what kind of animal? I was like, you know, a rock with arms or whatever you want to draw. And she just thought it was like hilarious, fun to work on. So, yeah, I think it's I, it's probably one of the most like strangest ideas. It's very much taking away of this, like it has to be cool and, you know, grim, dark and violent to being just yeah. like it's whimsical yeah there might be violence but it's also 
caring and uh, like mm. you're nurturing this tiny little snail man or whatever you roll up. It, it sort of when I first read about it as well, it, it it set off this like whole chain of events in my head of like, oh, maybe we could do like tabletop miniature walking simulators or something. Ooh. <laughs> Which to me would be the perfect thing if you just build a nice table of scenery and then you just spend an hour moving a figure around it, just getting down to bird's eye view and looking at the expanse of it. Yeah. Um, and I think it'd be it's going to be really interesting to hopefully see people take the idea of that game mm. and expand it to other things. I know there's a great server on Discord for non-violent miniature games. Mm. Yeah. Non-combat miniature. I, I can't remember what it's called, but there is that that server. And it's that's where you've got like Fishing 28, Swine Herding 28, and <laughs> all the... Um, I can't remember the title, but it's like Market Stall 28 or Market 28. Yeah, I think there's you, like all kind of 28 there. Yeah. Well, sort of the objective is just to move your miniature around in such a way that you get all your shopping done, which is mm. great. Like there's no... Fundamentally, when you reduce it down, all miniature games are just abstractions of real events. So there's no reason it has to be an entirely violent affair. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, hopefully, these things grow. It'll be really nice mm-hmm. to see one of them actually get to the point where it does become big enough to have some larger appeal and see what people make of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's also uh, speaks a bit to like the whole maturity of miniatures that you know you don't have to have violence in it to mm-hmm. like be adult. That you can have a game that basically just go you going picking up apples, yeah, and that's fun. It doesn't have to be a board mm. game; it's a miniatures game, but it's still whimsical. And you know, we're bearded old men doing this, and it's I, yeah. I think it's adorable. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's I, I just think of it; it's all a framework to just play with toys anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. basically, we are playing with toys. These are our dolls. Yes. And yeah, I mean, like, even the big Inquisitor events I put together has kind of been a weird way of, like, meeting friends, putting our Mm. toys on a table, taking some cool pictures, and then, you know, for show we play so we can say, like, yeah, yeah, we play games. But it's always just, like, we're talking about other things, and it's just friends meeting up to photograph toys. (laughs) I mean, at the moment, when people ask me, sort of, what I do, outside of my main job, when people go, oh, what, what, what is your business that you do? Because we know you do something else. I just say I'm a toy maker because it's easier. Mm. And that way, when I inevitably do show them what I do, it helps them frame what it is a bit better. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a good way to describe it, really. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, you're doing miniatures with Anna, her Grobnik, I think. I don't know how to pronounce yeah, it. Um, yeah, Grob- Grobniks. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about like the whole mammoth miniatures part. Well, I mean, originally it was just that was just my web store for the miniatures I was sculpting and casting. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, like I say, my background is sculpture. I've always made miniatures. Once you've made them, you may as well cast them because otherwise they just sit there. Yeah. Um, but the stuff with Anna was kind of inspired by two things on my end. I was watching a lot of documentaries about 90s comics 
and in particular kind of the independent comic companies that came about in response to unfair conditions for artists and writers in the comic industry, where you had people starting things like Image Comics deliberately to counter things like DC and Marvel. So with Image Comics, artists and writers retained all their creative control and they retained rights to what they made. And at the same time, I'm a big admirer of um, the arts and crafts movement and William Morris and the kind of socially conscious drive for the preservation of skills. So as someone who works by hand, I kind of developed this idea of it would be nice to have a service where people who also sculpt by hand can get their miniatures manufactured because not everyone has the means to cast things or the time or the resources. Yeah. But it's just a nice way to support people in their making miniatures. So the Mammoth Miniatures Publishing Service, basically you send me your figures, I'll cast them, distribute them, package them, host them on the website under your name. The artist retains all creative rights to what they make. So if, if Anna, for example, decided that she wanted to sell her Grobnik designs and withdraw them from sale, well, they're hers. That's that's yeah. her prerogative. That's for her to do they're hers she retains all rights to those um and i pay royalties of i think 65 percent for every single sale of every single figure because i was looking at the way a lot of companies have done it with miniatures in the past which is you buy a sculpt for between kind of 50 and maybe 200 pound depending on the artist and you produce that as a company in perpetuity and you basically just own that forever Mm. which you know if you if you just need some money and you don't mind doing that that's fine but i kind of felt like a lot of artists were selling really interesting great work and were selling their designs and their creative process and not making a huge deal from it and part of that comes down to the fact that the miniature industry is not very big all things considered you know yeah. there's it's all cottage industries basically um but it just sort of felt a bit unfair that for the longest time you had all these sculptors basically working freelance and not getting a great deal for their work. And luckily now with digital sculpting and 3D printing and digital distribution, you've got a lot of digital sculptors who can leverage the ability to distribute and control their work. And yeah, they can absolutely. make a living off their practice in a really great way. But that wasn't that still wasn't true for physical sculptors. They were still dependent on the people with the means to cast their work. And so I just wanted to offer an alternative to that that could be a bit more, just a little bit more egalitarian, where there was actually a continuous profit and the capacity to earn income from sale whilst retaining control of what you make. So the example I like to give is like if you... If you're someone like Bob Ollie, who designed the first Space Marine, you probably did get paid for that. You were employed by Games Workshop at the time. You got a paycheck. But your design has gone on to earn far more money than you will have ever earned for that design. Yeah, true. Now, I'm, I'm sure he has been more compensated in other ways. <laughs> you know, if you, mm -hmm. if you were Games Workshop, you would be silly to not maybe give him a nice Christmas bonus for that. But... I don't want someone to design the next big thing and then be locked out from ever using it or to lose that design. So yeah, that was sort of the driving force behind that really was to kind of have this, this 
option available to people. And it's 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 working okay. So we've got one, two, five, possibly six or seven coming up, different artists publishing through it. Okay, that's nice. Um, yeah. So we've got Banhus. Um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, he, makes up, he makes a lot of weird stuff. He does. I'm trying to remember names versus Instagram handles. So Oh, yeah, that's such a pain in the ass, isn't it? <laughs> Ginger Warrior, Jinga Warrior. Makes a little squig. Um, studio Atelier, Atelier, Atelier is what I read it as on Instagram. Um, has made a wonderful dice tower that we publish, and we've got a few other things coming up as well from yeah. sort of other sculptors. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's sort of what it's it's all about. And then obviously Anna's stuff is wonderful, and as long as she keeps sending it, we'll keep casting it basically. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully she's um, sending more. I think it's. I, I love it. It's so. It's so her in many ways. Yeah, and I will say, she's also very nice in that when she sends me something, they're normally mounted, ready for casting. Mm. So that's that's always nice. Just a little, <laughs> a little bit of extra help on my end. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's that's sort of what the the driving philosophy behind Mammoth Miniatures was, and obviously, you know, it's not. With that business model, it's obviously never going to be the next game's workshop. That's not a business model that maybe is infinitely scalable. But I think it's a nice business model to maintain. Because even if I decided I don't want to sculpt miniatures anymore, I could still then offer that service to people and I could still produce other people's work for them and other people could still make some income from that. And it can just remain as a platform to support other artists, which I like. And hopefully it's also fun to do, so... Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is. Um, it is. I mean, at the moment I'm working full-time, so it's a little bit kind of finish work, go to the studio, start the other work, come home. Mm. Oh, yeah. But that's, you know, that's just true of any kind of small industry where it's not your main income, really. Yeah, I mean, it's true for us here at 28, you know. Yeah. Work, then edit, or whip editors or chase layout stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like all these kind of passion projects yeah. we do on the side. And uh, I see our time is kind of running low. We still have like oh, yeah. nine minutes left, but I saw a lot of people wanted to ask about Space Bastards. Yes. So yeah. yeah, let's dig into it. What can you tell me? I've never heard of this because... Okay. Well, well I don't know why. <laughs> it's... um. It's something I am working on to hopefully be launched, hopefully later this year, possibly early next year. Um, and Space Base Bastard is basically my kind of love letter slash piss take of third edition 40k. <laughs> That's my Maybe edition. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically, just every now and again, I get this desire to actually play Warhammer 40,000 at the scale I enjoy it at, which is that kind of third edition, a couple of tanks, some squads, and a couple of heroes scale. And I never actually get around to it for one reason or another. So I thought, well, if I make a game that sort of does what all, all of what I imagine Warhammer to be in my head, this kind of nostalgic version of Warhammer that exists entirely within me, I'll put that onto paper and put it out into the world, and that'll force me to actually play some games. But um, so... it. Space Bastards will be a kind of um, a departure from Planet 28 in that it will actually have a universe set to it. So it will have its own setting and its own factions. Because again, I, I with Planet 28, because everything is so open, 
it's great in one sense, but also you're sort of limited in what you can do in terms of that world building and that creation. So Space Bastards is sort of my first attempt at, I want to build a universe to set a game in. Um, So it will feel familiar, but it's not going to be in any way a one-to-one copy of anything that exists currently. Hopefully, that's the plan. Yeah, but that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, Are you going to make any miniatures for it, or is it just rules? I would like to make miniatures for it. The, the the thought was to make a starter kit for it that is a book and some paper figures. Because I like paper oh, yeah. figures, and I think they're cheap and easy. Um, yeah, I mean, like, if they're nice looking, it's really good. And it keeps it affordable that way. So you can buy the Space Bastard starter kit in true sort of late 80s fashion. It comes with everything made out of paper or card that you have to cut out and put together yourself. Just to kind of keep with this kind of... Um, pretend retro vibe that I wanted to have. Mm. You know, I like paper miniatures, and mm. it kind of calls back to that time where you couldn't really afford miniatures. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if the, you know, as we old people like to say, the kids today have the same kind of nostalgia for it, but I don't know. Like, a lot of the indie people seem to enjoy that kind of thing. Mm. So I think it's most likely going to be successful. Well, hopefully. I've seen some like really interesting paper miniatures around lately. There seems to be like a, a push for them at the moment. Yeah. I know Sean Sutter, who does Relic Blade, has just put out like a, a full downloadable paper starter kit for Relic Blade, which is really fun. Mm. He's got a really nice art style for that. So yeah, ho- hopefully something comes of it. But to be honest, yeah. it's, at the moment, it's the most completed of about a dozen side projects and other small games and bits and pieces all within this kind of massive word document of different ideas <laughs> but normally if it's got cover art that means i'm going to finish it and it has cover art so all right cool that, that means it's number one on the list until something else gets better cover art <laughs> are you doing all the art yourself or are you getting out yeah yeah almost, um i'm doing mostly all the art myself if I would quite like to commission some other artists because there's loads of artists I really like and there's loads of illustrators in the community who I think do really fantastic art. So yeah, hopefully I would like to actually commission some art for other things in future. Mm. But I I do have other ideas for a place to do that that isn't Space Bastards. But that that idea doesn't have cover art yet, so it's not worth talking about. We'll wait with, Mm -hmm. well, bated breath, I guess. (laughs) But now it's good to see that there's like a lot of different projects coming out from you. Yeah, I'm all, I've always got something on the go. I don't think I could ever not be working on something. That would that would drive me mad to not have a project to fiddle with, basically. Yeah, and I mean, like, sometimes, you know, the fiddling and the tinkering is the best parts. Yeah, I mean, Space Busters, for, for the most part, is actually finished in terms of the actual mechanics of it. The rules are done. All right, cool. I could I could give give someone a sheet, and if, with a bit of talk through, we could play a game of Space Bastards. But the fun bit comes from kind of then refining that and fiddling with it, and formatting it, and figuring out where you want the artwork to go and stuff. Because again, you know, I'm I'm not a digital or a, a particularly analytical person. I'm a very visual kind of physically person. Mm. So. Doing the game is fine, but the fun bit for me is then making that game into a thing, into an object that I can give to someone. That's that's where the actual kind of work is for me. 
Yeah, no, but that, that sounds like, you know, the most enjoyable part for a lot of mm. people. I mean, yeah, some like the math of, like, really crunching mm. the rules, and some like building a world, I guess. Mm. Like making a beautiful document that shows, like, hey, here is the place where they live. Yeah. I will say over time, I, I've definitely got much more interested in game mechanics as kind of a, a medium to mess with. Mm. I, I can now, if I really want to, I can sit down and challenge myself to make a game around a particular mechanic or an idea, and I'll really enjoy that. But again, I, I think that just that kind of just comes back to how I would do anything in terms of artwork or creative some processes. It's just another me- medium to work with. The mathematics side of it, though, that's that's not that's still a struggle. That's still a struggle to get enthused for that, to be honest. Unfortunately, I'm noticing our time is running out now. And uh, even though I would love to talk math with you, it's always an interesting subject. But it's I just want to say it's been a true pleasure talking with you. This oh, was a you. lot of fun. I think we'll have to continue this in a future episode, maybe mm-hmm. once Space Busters is closer to finish. Yeah, once we're doing the media tour for Space Bastards, I'll, uh, I'll come back. Then you'll pop by here at Tower 28. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you here, Nick. And thank you to all our listeners. This was another episode of 32 Name Change Pending. And uh, we'll be back in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.